Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, I'm very, very uh, happy today. Uh, this this whole, uh, I'll call it an experiment of Industry Standard has uh, just, it's just blown me away and, uh, and, and you guys um, have been incredible and I thank you so much for, for all the support. Uh, without you guys trust me this uh show wouldn't exist and it lets me know that uh there's hope and there's inspiration for a lot of people who uh need it and i wish that when i was growing up i was privy to hearing the journeys of so many extraordinary and talented people around uh the entertainment business so without further ado, my guest today I'm very excited about uh, is a, a young man named Royce Clayton and uh, who uh, we are sitting on a couch uh, and I am wearing a Boston Red Sox uniform with David Ortiz's number on it and uh, it says World Series 2007 and behind us is the actual on-deck circle. Uh, for the Red Sox, for the World Series, where who knows, his cleat marks might be on here somewhere. But uh, you'll know Royce Clayton uh, as a baseball player, uh, but he's so, so much more, and he's done so many different things 
in the entertainment business and in other areas of the world. And he's got a great story that I thought would be really, really inspirational for all of you. But before we get into that, I wanted to tell you a story that's sort of like a six degrees of separation. And first of all, before I start the story, I just want to say that uh, it's one of the great things uh, in life if you're a parent is Little League Baseball. There's there's nothing like it. And um, when I was growing up, it was an amazing thing. And it taught you about being a young man. It taught you about responsibility. It taught you about camaraderie, teamwork, navigation. It taught you about the right and wrong about life. It taught you how to work together with people of all races and ethnicities as a team. And um, it's an amazing thing. And to see my sons at Little League and to see them with Royce Clayton, who is a guy who coaches and helps coach uh, one of the teams of my sons. It's just, it almost makes me emotional because I'm privy to something that very few people get to have, is that to have your child talk to somebody who was an all-star, who won a World Series, who played for 17 years, which is probably in the top 1% of 1% of all the players who ever played the game in the past 125 years. And to see the impact he makes with them in terms of everything is incredible. And to see the players and how they interact. And literally, the team is like, you know, it's like a great team. It's like the United Colors of Benetton. It's like all different. It's like going to Miami. It's like uh, there's no minorities on our team. Everybody's everybody of every walk of life, including my kids who look like they're uh, surfers that went wrong and, and went into baseball. Anyway, but getting on with my story, I'm sorry to digress here. But in 1975, the Red Sox were doing really well. They had Carl Yastrzemski, and he was their biggest player at the time. And they had Spaceman Bill Lee. They had Dwight Evans, Bernie Carbo, El Tiante, Louis Tiant. And for some unexplained reason, they got into the World Series. And being from Longmeadow, Massachusetts... I, I was in heaven and I had a crazy cousin who was like a savant almost one of those guys who is a brilliant guy, but it's like one half a step behind socially to the rest of the world. And he just told me we're going to the World Series. I said, do you have tickets? He said, no, I don't have any tickets. I said, well, how are we going to get there? He said, I'm going to borrow my family's car. It's a Lancer. I said, what is a Lancer? He said, you'll find out. Listen, I'm going to pick you up, kick you up at 10 o'clock in the morning. The game's at 1. It's a Saturday. And we're going to Fenway Park. See the Reds, the big red machine with Pete Rose, J. 
Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Dave Concepcion, Tony Perez, uh, George Foster, just an and managed by Sparky Anderson. So I get in this car. This Lancer is like a push-button transmission. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And he's driving down the Massachusetts Turnpike. I'm from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, near the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. And he's driving like 95 miles an hour because he came late. And it's like, and you're in no control. You're in the passenger seat. You think you're going to die. And he's driving through the streets of Boston like like a madman, like they're weaving in and out of traffic, finally parks illegally in front of a hydrant. He's like, come on. And I'm, he's running, you know, and, I, and I'm running after him. And I said, where's our tickets? He said, oh, well, we're going to get them from scalpers. I said, what? He said, we're going to get them from scalpers. He's going all around the park, you know, got tickets, got tickets. Everybody wants like $1,000 a ticket, but he doesn't have that kind of money. And it's getting towards the game time, and he's panicking, and he's really frustrated and upset. And he turns to me, he says, Barry, I don't know what we're going to do, man. I'm, I'm sorry, I just too expensive. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. And all of a sudden, there was a tap on his shoulder, and this man in a trench coat beige trench coat a distinguished looking man like probably in his 60s or 70s with his wife who kind of was dressed like barbara bush he looks down at my uh cousin he says boy you need some tickets and he says well yes i do here i tell you what boy i'll give you these tickets here two tickets you gotta promise me one thing boy I said, uh, I looked at the guy and I, I talked because my cousin was in shock, you know. He says, I said to him, what, what do you mean you're going to give us the tickets? He said, boy, I'll give them to you for face value. All you got to do is pay me the price on the ticket. And I looked at him. I said, well, what's the catch? I don't understand. Boy, the catch is this. You have to promise me that you two will sit next to me and my wife. I said, okay, no problem. My cousin Rick was so excited, he just pulled out the money, probably gave him a little extra. He was so excited. We got in the park, we're celebrating, everything's happy, everybody's excited. I watched the game, and uh, I find out through talking to this man that he is a scout for the Cincinnati Reds. And he's very excited about it. And he tells me about how he works for Marge Schott. And, of course, Marge Schott had had her own problems because she was considered a person who um, was not favorable to uh, players of uh, different ethnicities and races. And she had a really, really bad reputation. And the guy was happy when the game started. World Series was starting. It was the big red machine versus the Red Sox. But wouldn't you know what? El Tiante was going against a guy named Don Gullett. And slowly we took the lead and we won the game six to nothing. And as he was leaving, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, Excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? And he said, Yeah, what is it? I said, Why? 
Did you say the only catch was that you wanted us to sit next to you? And he said, Boy, I wanted you to sit next to us because I didn't want any coloreds sitting next to us. That's why. And so that story resonates to me so much because it taught me at that point in time the right and the wrong in life. And it made me feel sick to my stomach that at the best point in my life, which was watching my team win the World Series, I wasn't in control and I was subject to knowing that information that I didn't want to know and I didn't want to be a part of ever. And so when I sit across from Royce Clayton and I see the way this little league team operates and I see the way you operate with these players and how my kids have a view of the world versus the view of the world that I was shown that day. I'm proud to know that I'm living in 2014 rather than 1975. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Let's do this! All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard. Uh, We have a great show today. Uh, My guest today is Royce Clayton. And let me tell you a little about Royce Clayton. There's so much to tell you besides what I've already told you. Royce Clayton uh, is an actor and producer, but best known also as a baseball player who was drafted by the San Francisco Giants and made his major league debut on September 20th, 1991. He played for the Giants for the first five seasons of his major league career. He was selected to the All-Star Game to represent the St. Louis Cardinals, which he's going to talk about where he was traded and uh, was the heir apparent to Hall of Famer Ozzie Smith. Uh, 
He also uh, was played for many, many teams, but uh, played for uh, my team for the second half of 2007, the Boston Red Sox, where he won a world championship. He does a lot of different things. Currently, he has a company called PWM, which is Private Wealth Management, but he also has been an actor. He is been in Moneyball, where he played Miguel Tejada. He has actually done Sunday Night Baseball telecast as a correspondent and the 1997 Major League uh, All-Star Game. Also been actively involved in the Jackie Robinson Foundation during his playing career. But the main thing that he is doing that intrigues me that we're going to talk about is a company called Music Locker, where if you're familiar with uh, players uh, being played on by things and musical numbers, uh, and uh, if you remember last year during his retirement, um, uh, Mariano Rivera always was played on by the song Enter Sandman. And Royce has uh, committed and formed this company called Music Locker, where he's uh, working with DJ Ski where to take players and have players take control of the entertainment that plays before they go on so they can own a portion of the music and the publishing. And so all that money that would normally go to an artist where they play the song, they create songs for them. So there's a lot of different things to talk about, but this guy's journey is really, really unbelievable. So please welcome my guest today. I'm very excited to have him, Royce Clayton. And thanks for having me. I'm more excited about how you paint the picture. I'm like, man, I did all that stuff. That's pretty That's pretty cool. And by the way, you have to be like one of the best storytellers I've ever been around. And, you know, in baseball, you're around a lot of great storytellers. But just the way that you methodically paint the picture, I can see you getting into this old beat up car and going to the ballpark at Fenway Park with your, what was it, your cousin? Yeah. And the way that you paint the picture is this beautiful and it represents a lot of storytelling when it comes to baseball so uh when you paint the picture of you know what i've done in a short period of time in my life it's really an honor and privilege to be here and thanks again and you know just the way that you paint the picture about malibu and the little league it's just it's just magical and it is that type of situation it is truly magical. What's shocking the most about this interview is that you're not spitting out sunflower seeds on the floor. That's the, <laughs> that's the, Usually when we're talking, I'm spitting seeds, right? That's the only thing that's missing here. It's like unbelievable. I mean, I'm literally talking to him, and he's flinging these things out of his mouth. They're hitting me in the chest. I'm like, I, I don't even care. You know, I'm like, I'm, 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 with a, I'm with a guy like who's an idol of mine. I get to sit across from him. But I appreciate the storyteller thing because – when I started this podcast, one of the good and bad things about me throughout business is I take meetings and I'd always tell stories and you never knew if the people were like happy to hear the story or if they were just rolling their eyes saying, okay, when the fuck is he getting over with the story already? I'm enough with the stories. So I'm, I'm glad. And just to go back to the Little League thing, it's like what I see you do with these kids is just incredible. When I see you with your own child and it's fat children, I'm sorry. And it fascinates me because you, you have like a different persona for them than you have for the, the rest of the world. And I see you when you walk over to them and you walk over to them when they're like your, your son was pitching the other day and 
naturally your son is one of the most gifted people in the world. It, it, it's like, uh, it, it, you know, it's it, to see him play. It's just insane. And literally the kid is like the size of Tony Cox and bad Santa. He's like the littlest <laughs> kid you could, you could ever imagine. It's like, but he's like, he's, he's like unbelievable. I mean, he's got a cannon. He can pitch, he can do whatever. But occasionally, like everybody in life, you have a bad day. And he was pitching, and it was a close game, and we'd been undefeated in this team. And he was just having a bad day. He was walking people, and 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 I saw Royce walk out. You know, normally the coach calls time and watches that. And Royce is like, you know, he's probably, I don't know what he considers himself, but he probably would consider himself, uh, to put his ego aside, maybe the fourth coach on the team. There's three coaches, and maybe he considers himself a coach advisor. But he says time to the rat, the ump, and the ump is like, okay, whatever. And he walks out there, and you're thinking, why the fuck is he walking out there? He's not the coach, but he walks out there. His son's on the mound. And he talks to his son like you can see. He's talking to his son literally like Earl Weaver from Baltimore <laughs> in the old days would talk to his closer you know, who uh, we just called him six pack. I forget the guy who was the closer at that time, but, and he's talking to him like he's a man, like he's not talking to him like he's a boy. He's standing straight up. Like when he's doing this interview, he's kind of hunched over like, like me, like the letter O he's kind of like has this relaxed way about him. But when he's walking out to talk to his kid, it's like a military operation. He's walking out slow. He's got that methodical thing. He steps over the chalk line like a pro player does for superstition. <laughs> he gets there and he stands in front of him. He doesn't say anything at first. Then he turns around and looks at everybody, looks back down at his son. And his son looks up at him like, you know, what's going to happen here? And you can't hear what's said. But what, whatever it is that's said... He slowly walks back to the dugout. The next pitch, all you hear is Steerike. <laughs> and it's like, it's just all of a sudden, he, you know, he gets into the person's head and, and, and you do that for these players. And it's just, it's, it's, I can see how it makes you feel because after the game, you sort of relax a little bit. But when you're in the game, you're literally, it's like, I feel like you're as competitive as you were when you were playing. And that to me is, is really exciting to know that you give that back to the kids. And I, I know we're going to tell a lot about your story and what the deal is, but I wanted to give you props for that because there's so many players out there and, and I want to just share one other thing that was funny regarding Royce and, and the little league. So Royce, you know, played with Barry Bonds, which we're going to talk about. And I guess when you're in the Malibu Little League and Royce Clayton is a guy who's part of the Little League, when the opening ceremonies come around, you just don't get, you know, Joe Smith, the uh, the guy who was the Little League All-Star in 1957 coming here to throw out the first pitch. Oh, no, no, not at all. Your kids are all around. There's hundreds of kids around with their banners and the guy who runs the Little League comes up to the mic, and all of a sudden you hear this booming voice. Ladies and gentlemen, 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 we have a special guest, guest, guest to throw out the first ball, 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 ball. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 
bazillion time all-star home run king barry bonds to throw out the first pitch and you're like what the fuck is going on here this is incredible and i'm standing behind my kids and they're just watching in awe and i'm watching past them as barry bonds is throwing out the first pitch he's like a a hundred yards away and before he throws it out they say and barry is committed to take a picture with every kid here with their team and it's like the kids are like oh and all and me coming from a comedy background it was never evident in that moment right before he threw out the first pitch because my kids turned back at me and in unison they looked up at me and they said daddy Daddy! I'm like, yeah, guys, what's up? Is he still on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so I want to talk about you and I want to talk about your beginnings because uh, I think this is important to our audience because everybody out there has something that they end up doing, but a lot of times you're sitting around and you don't know what you're going to be doing or how you're going to be doing it. Tell me where you actually grew up and tell me what you were doing before you ever had an idea that you wanted to play baseball. Like what was the first germ of an idea? What was the inspiration? What happened and where were you and what kind of, you know, area were you living in? Were you, you know, in a, were you growing up in a, an environment that was more an easy environment to grow up in? Was it harder? What happened? Well, first off, I grew up in Inglewood. So, Inglewood. I mean, and it's a whole backdrop behind that. I'll tell you another side story. Uh, my dad was a, a hardworking Cadillac salesman. He sold cars. My mother worked for TWA. So we had some perks. So I was able to s s travel a little bit, see the world, because my mom worked for TWA. But, uh, you know, just growing up in a normal middle class, I, I would consider middle class neighborhood in Inglewood was a great upbringing. I mean, there was a lot of different, like you said, exposures to different people, uh, different surroundings. I went to school in high school in Playa del Rey at St. Bernard's High School. Why did you go to high school in Playa del Rey if you were from Inglewood? Well, at that time, you know, there there was uh, that. There was a middle class here in L.A. It was it was big that the African-American community had a middle class and they considered their, themselves hardworking. And if they had the opportunity, would send their kids to better schools, private schools outside the city of, you know, like in Inglewood School District. I grew up right down the street from Latihara, but I went to Westchester uh, Lutheran Elementary School because my parents worked hard to afford my brother and myself a better education. And to me, uh, that that opportunity for diversity and exposure to a lot of different type of people. And, you know, comedians tell that story that, uh, you know, they walk into their buddy's house that, you know, the white guy that they grew up with. And, you know, the, the, the kid goes, hey, mom, kiss my ass. And that's real shit. And I'm like, whoa, that shit happened. You know, <laughs> so so that I mean, I'm not using that lightly, but the exposure to different types of people, how they raise their kids, how they're brought up and just an overall upbringing to to have different types of experiences helped me be where I wound rounded to the point where in my career I could play for 11 different teams 
because I've been in a lot of different situations, exposed to a lot of, at an early age to where I can adjust and vibe to say, I've been in his situation. I know what goes on in his home. I've been in that situation. I grew up in an inner city environment to where there's some street issues. There's drugs. There's this. I know how to deal with that element as well. So it made me well-rounded to deal with a lot of different people and situations. But to get back to Inglewood is the funny story about that is the same thing happened. I, I broke into the big leagues, and my first game um, for full season was here at Dodger Stadium. And Vince Scully's calling the game. He said, up comes Royce Clayton from Burbank, California. My mom's watching telecast, and she goes, after the game, can you tell Mr. Scully that <laughs> you were just born in Burbank, but you grew up in Inglewood? So I go back the next day, and we're having batting practice. I see Mr. Scully at around the cage, and I said, Mr. Scully, my name is Royce Clayton. Hey, congratulations, kid. You, you know, welcome to the big leagues. You're going to have a long career. I said, can you do me a favor? You're saying I, I grew up in Burbank, but I was just born in Burbank, but I grew up in Inglewood. And can you just let the people know that? He goes, hey, kid, don't worry about it. Give the people in Burbank something to be proud of. So he, <laughs> he wasn't going to change the story. <laughs> so that's classic Ben Scully, right? He, he's already told that 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 story. It's, that's gone with the wind. So I was Royce Clayton from Burbank the rest of my career. <laughs> so, so what was the first inspiration of playing baseball when you were in Little League and you were playing in your leagues was it obvious to everybody that you had this natural ability and it was just everything was coming natural to you or was it not obvious? Well, I don't think it was obvious until, I don't know if it, when it was obvious, but my uncle, my play uncle, cause he got a lot of uncles and aunts uh -huh. in the community. But, uh, I remember there was something like a foul ball goes up over the third baseline. I'm playing short and I go busting towards the dugout and I kind of scale the fence and just grab it, bring it back. And after the game, he goes, son, you're going to play in the big leagues one day. I'll never forget that. But to answer your question about the moment, um, a lot of things revolved around here in L.A. was I went to – my dad had tickets to the um, Dodger game. So I'd go to the Dodger games um, probably, you know, eight, ten times a year. And for some reason, St. Louis is playing. And uh, had good seats, so I'm kind of checking everything out and, you know, just kind of meandering through the whole situation. And I, I fixated on Ozzie Smith playing shortstop. And it looked to me like he was having more fun than everybody else out there on the diamond. And, and what, and what Ozzie Smith, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, was famous for, uh, besides his, his playing and his defense, uh, every inning that he went out to the field, if I'm not mistaken... No, just at home games, he would start off the first inning. Uh, at home games, he would start off the <laughs> the first inning where he would run to a shortstop and he would do a flip in midair and land on his feet and then go to his position. Right. So fast forward 1988, I started doing that going out in high school. You were doing flips. <laughs> I would do a backflip going out in the shortstop. That's how passionate I became about. I became a student. I studied every single thing in the backdrop behind that story. Everything, every single thing about Isaac Smith I had. And at that time, you couldn't access St. Louis memorabilia living in L.A. But my mother, working at TWA, their hub was in St. Louis. So she would go to St. Louis 
and pick up memorabilia from, you know, Ozzy Smith, clippings, little statue, anything that she could grab about Ozzy Smith because she knew I was I was so passionate about his play and my, my favorite player, she would bring that back. And so, okay, so you're a teen, you're, are you a teenager? What are you, where, how old are you? Oh, yeah, I'm a teenager. But that first game at Dodger Stadium when I saw him play, I was 13. 13. And so in your little league, on your little league team, if you were to take a poll of all the players on the team privately and they were to ask who's the best player on the team, would you have been the person they would have said? On my little league team? Yes. Maybe one, but no. 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 Okay, so what point in this trajectory of your journey playing baseball, when you went home after a game and you sat down in your room... Did you actually say to yourself, I, I'm I'm the best around now? Well, I decided that I was going to be a big league player after that game. I said, I'm going to do what that guy's doing. You made, said, that, you made that decision. Like, undoubtedly, that's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to do. I saw him play the shortstop position. I said, that's what I want to do. But there wasn't the access to information of how you get to where you want to go in any profession back then. <laughs> How did you know what it was going to take to get to the big leagues? And what in your mind at that point when you made the decision did you have to do differently to get to the big leagues? Well, I think I vocalized it uh, a couple times. And, you know, I was kind of made fun of, you know, nobody in the hood is going to come out and be a major league baseball player, let alone, you know, play shortstop in the big leagues. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever, you know. But as time went on, uh, I think uh, just understanding the dedication and work ethic of repetitions, going after it, after practice, doing more practice, uh, every waking moment, dreaming about that and doing extra things that I would understand would make me a better player. I enjoyed it. So it wasn't work. So at that point, you know, I'd say, hey, guys, my buddies that you know I grew up with, that were on my high school team, let's say, hey, let's go do, a, let's go run these hills right quick. Like, what are you going to do that for? I said, because our legs will get stronger, you know, we'll play better and, you know, help us in the long run. And I remember one of my buddies was like, man, I ain't doing that. So I just go off and run by myself and I made a habit. I'd come home and run. So you were a self-motivator. Absolutely. Wow. And so, and so you started working harder than everybody else on your team. But who worked with you? Like where, you know, in baseball, the weirdest thing is not like basketball where Larry Bird can go to the free throw line and make a pact with himself and say, listen, this is the deal. Okay, I'm going to make 100 free throws in a row after this game or after practice. And if I don't make 100 in a row and I miss number 99, I'm going to start all over again. I'm not going home until I make 100 in a row. So part of the process is when... I grew up, like I said, I lived down the street from elementary school. And there's a famous spot that I don't know if they they probably they, they have fixed it. But there was a gate that I'd take my tee and I'd take my sack of balls and my bat and go hit against this gate. I mean, I, I wore this thing out to where it was a big indentation to the ball started going through this hole. But I wanted to hit that spot a hundred times a day, every day after practice. Then I go up and throw the ball off the off the wall, you know, those kickball, um, you know, handball courts. 
and throw different hops, backhand, forehand, just work on my rhythm as far as not understanding how to get a hop, charge it. So I thought I can control and create the hop off the wall. So I didn't anybody hit it. I just knew, I just knew I wanted to make my hands better. So you could do things by yourself. People always had that misnomer. Oh, you can't do anything by yourself because baseball, you need this, you need that. But I tell kids all the time, if you play wall ball, which I call that, as far as throwing the ball off the wall, if you're a pitcher trying to hit a target on the wall, or if you're a hitter, you hit off the tee and work on your mechanics, you'll get better. That's amazing. So you're you're out, you're doing everything, and you're motivated because you want to make it to the pros. So you go to college? No, I signed out of high school. So you're in high school. When do you know you're the best player on the team? What year? It wasn't until my, we had some pretty good players. There was, you know, guys that are ahead of me. I made the freshman team as a, as a uh, the varsity team as a freshman. Is that even legal? <laughs> we had this funny story. It's Benny Lefevre is a famous uh, guy that invented one of the hitting tees, a great hitting mind and so forth. My freshman year, he had the entire varsity team switch hit, which affected a lot of good players as far as getting scholarships, I think. But it was an interesting thing that he was on his last coaching leg. He was going to retire after this year. And the entire varsity team at St. Bernard's High School switch hit. Now, there's only three or four lefties in, in, in high school baseball. So a majority of our, uh, of our bats were left-handed, which was very awkward for guys that had never done it in their whole life. But, uh, but you had never done it in your whole life. I didn't. I I just, you know, I should have kept switch hitting is what I should have done. I should have taken that lesson. And that's what I'm talking to Royce and Elijah about is that switch hitting is a huge, huge advantage if you could do it, and especially if you can run as a right, as a, uh, a right-handed player. But out of the percentage, 100% of all the players in Major League Baseball, how many are switch hitters? What percentage? I'd say it's maybe... Two percent, two percent. That not even close. And of those two percent, are they great players? Are they great hitters? They don't have to be. I mean, great hitters are guys that you know can carve and do different things. But you know, a guy on the left side, you don't have to be a great hitter. You could just slap the ball and run and become a guy that gets three thousand hits. So it's all relative to how you go about it. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So you're switch hitting, 
and who comes to scout you? Who who scouts high school teams? You know, we, we at that time we created a niche because we started to win. And I, I tell people that all the time all the time. I didn't go to a big, you know, powerhouse baseball high school. We're known for basketball. I played basketball as well. But uh because myself and a guy named Tim Williams were setting a precedent as far as, hey, you know, they got great players, these kids, you need to come watch them. College scouts come, then the pro scouts come right after that. And myself and Tim both played on the junior Olympic team. I was a junior. He was a senior. So uh, I hit a home run off of Alex Fernandez in the in the world games to kind of propel myself into, you know, worldwide recognition. And I ended up making the junior Olympic team as a, as a junior and played shortstop. So that really created a lot of attention as far as me as a player. My dad will tell you or tell everybody else. That was the moment that put me on the map because I think it was Gary Kendall was in the stands and he said, your son just became a star. So uh, that's kind of where it all started. Well, it's, you know, it's all about <clears throat> what you do on the big stage. And for our audience, it's always who listens. It's like, it doesn't matter what profession you're in. When you finally get that opportunity where people are watching, you have to deliver and you have to deliver in a big way. And if you don't deliver, you know, then you're in trouble and because other people can pass you. It's like we were talking about the other day about the Red Sox this past year and they were the way they were playing. I mean, they were batting 100. I mean, they weren't even hitting. David Ortiz was like, you know, I think he was 0 for 13 or 1 for 13 or something before he hit that home run. And but even though he didn't do it on the stage the first game or the second game, you know, there was still that big stage and he still had room to make it happen and he made it happen. And you made it happen where you were and you were cognizant of the fact through all the hard work. And chances are maybe you hit that home run because maybe the other players didn't do that extra run when they were growing up. <laughs> it's funny because when I it was a game winner, it was a walk off. Wow. And Tim Williams, my buddy who I was telling to come run with me, was on deck. And he goes, I come circle, I'll never forget. I came in, circle, everybody's going crazy. He looks at me, he goes, Man, I didn't know you had that in you. I kind of looked at him, you know, like what you my boy are you hating on me a little bit or what but you know it just kind of speaks volumes he went on to play uh, uh college ball at lmu never got drafted but uh i'm not saying that's the reason he didn't get drafted is no but it's but there's a certain mentality and i tell people all the, all the time i played with a lot of talented guys growing up that had a lot of ability but to be a pro is is a word pro it's a professional so you go about your work in the right way you live your life in the right way. There's very few people that can cheat the system and, and become a pro. So I, I just I just put that in perspective. People try to break them down to understanding. It's not like, okay, oh, he's fast, he's this, he's that. There's a whole mentality behind being a pro that people that aren't pros don't have it. And it's that dedication, that work ethic, and the understanding of what it is to be a pro. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you here <laughs> because – what you just said is just so important for everybody listening because people don't, I don't know what it is. They, they just don't understand. A lot of people don't understand what it's like to, to work hard at something and to be great at something. Like one of my producers who I'm going to call out here, uh, Ari Manis is a young comedian and, um, 
And he's a guy who every night he's at a different place working. And these places that you wouldn't be seen in the light of day. I mean, this guy is doing shows in laundromats at Hooters. It's like he's trying to tell a joke, and a girl is walking by with an orange bikini and a and a and a tank top. You know, uh, that's the seven sizes too tight. He's trying to tell a clever joke, but the point is, is that he's out. He's doing it every night, and he's he's doing what he can to handle himself as a pro now one of the things he told me recently he said listen i got booked in a gig i'm going up north to seattle or whatever i booked for like a, a 30 minute show and i looked at him i said ari you don't you don't have 30 minutes he said yeah i know i'm gonna go up there i'm gonna do some crowd work for about 15 minutes and then i'm gonna do the rest of my material i'm like i'm like ari that's not you can't you can't do crowd work this is like a professional gig you gotta go in Barry, I'm not going to turn down the gig. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to do the best I can. But the point being is, is that even though he wasn't ready to do that gig, he prepared as best he could to get there. And he's doing everything he can to be the best comedian he can be. And I believe that the work ethic he's showing now is going to get him further in the business. I believe that he's going to be not only a great performer, but he's going to be a great writer. He's going to create a lot of great stuff. And I see it in him. And I see so many people who don't work hard. And I see so many people in comedy that don't do it. And they just think that they have a sense of entitlement and they're going to go forward. And it's nice to see that in, in your profession is the same way. At an early age, you said to yourself, listen, no one, I, I can't count on anyone else but myself. And I say this all the time. It's like where you were doing your thing. There wasn't one player that wanted to see you succeed over them. And it's true in every profession. When Ari goes to the Hooters and does his comedy act with 10 other people, all of those 10 people are trying to have the best set of the night. And so they can, you know, walk home and say, I did it. Hopefully walk home with somebody wearing orange and say, I did it. But the point being is like everywhere you are, it doesn't matter where you are. If you work in a hospital and you're training as a doctor and there's, you know, there's all these people training, working 60, 70 hours, none of them want to see you do better than them and go to the best hospital. They want to go there. And so you have to figure out what it takes to get to that next level. And you did that in your own mind when your uncle said that to you. And then when you hit the home run on the big stage, it showed that friend of yours, the guy who didn't take the jog with you, that hard work does pay off. And he was the one who was expected to hit the home run. But he didn't hit the home run because if you think about it, if he didn't take that jog that day, that means he didn't take the jog another day. And if you add up all these situations of all the jogs, you could probably add up hundreds of hours of exercise and strengthening and whatever it took and mental toughness to get where it is. And it's the same thing in comedy. It's the same thing in everything. You have to put in more hours than everybody else and you have to be a self-motivator to get it done. And that's a great lesson that you just said there and told. So the scouts come and um, how many scouts from how many different teams came from the pros? I say, I say my senior year, I'd have 15 to 20 scouts there every day. 
I mean, it just became something that, uh, you know, everybody knew that, uh, you know, I had some special talent and was honing my skills. Uh, you know, my thing was to get a scholarship so my parents didn't have to pay for my education. And I'll tell you a side story. My dad was a huge SC fan, take us to USC games. I went to USC sports club. So it was, you know, basically 10, 10 minutes from my house. So when I was offered a full scholarship to USC, he was the proudest father on earth. My son has accomplished any, everything. Uh, this is unbelievable. My brother went to ASU on a professional scholarship, but for me to get a scholarship to USC, a full ride was like unbelievable. So when I was drafted in the first round by the giants in 1988, uh, it was a huge situation. Uh, you know, Al Rosen comes to the house. I was out of town, on, by the way. Uh, Al Rosen. He was the general manager. <laughs> Great Hall of Fame player. Yeah, so uh, so he comes to your house. Yes. Before you get drafted? or This is this is when they're trying to sign me. So my dad is, he was, he, he built a reputation, no nonsense. You know. Wait, so, so he, I, cause uh, take us through the process. So do you, do they try to sign you before they draft you or after they draft you, they try to sign you? There's something they try to evaluate your signability, you uh-huh. know, say, well, you know, and that's why people would say, Hey man, don't sign this, you know, scholarship deal. Cause they won't draft you, which is a bunch of malarkey. It just gives you, oh, uh, you come from a position of strength. You have more to negotiate with them against. So he comes to the house with your dad. Yeah. I'm I'm on a high school trip in Jamaica with my buddies that I saved up to go to. So I'm which is which was good. So this whole process, I'm calling home and and talking to my mom to see how things are going. So Al Rosen, the scout that drafted me, George Genovese, who's drafted, I mean, you can look up his resume. Every great giant that came from LA, George Genovese drafted, including myself. I humbly say that. Name three of them. Chili Davis, George Foster. And Gary Maddox. Right. I mean, that's three of, I mean, Chris Brown, I can go on and on. But uh, so they come to the house. I know they're at the house. So I call from Jamaica to say, hey, how'd everything go? My mom's kind of quiet and hesitant. And she goes, son, your father kicked them all out the house. <laughs> and I knew something was going to happen, but I didn't know he was going to kick him out the house. Why did he kick him out of the house? Because he felt that their offer was an insult. What was their offer? I think at the time it may have been $100,000. And he said, that's an insult. Don't come to my home and insult <laughs> me and my family like that. Get the hell out of my house. And he probably used some other choice words, but that was the gist of it. Ari, how would you like that kind of insult? <laughs> no. Ari's saying, I'll take the 100000 I'm good. Probably. Uh, so, um, so he throws them out of the house, but it's the power of no, which always works, you know, because you let people know that, hey, listen, sorry, we're not interested. And, you know, other people could come in. So when I the, didn't know the power of no at 18, but your dad did. <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to play baseball. That's all I knew. So you were afraid your dad blew it. I was 100% sure that he blew it for me. What was the next thing that happened? I came home and I'm just trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And at the time, you somewhat have, I didn't sign with an, an agent at the time. Oren Tellum was, uh, was very active into the process as far as talking to me 
my dad was very hard. He didn't want to talk to anybody. Arn Tellum, great sports agent. Right. He didn't want to talk to Arn. He's cussing out Arn. He's cussed, he's cussed out everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, you know, get the hell. Can't bullshit me. Uh, jacking me off. That's what was, that was his favorite term. That was his favorite term, jacking yeah. me off. He jacking me off with that bullshit. <laughs> so that's a term I never understood. <laughs> To be honest with you, I mean, right? I mean, he's talking about something negative, and that seems to me to be a positive thing to happen to me. If I could just have somebody do that to me, that's positive. That's not negative. But anyway, go on with your thing. So, uh, you know, he's like, "Son, they'll be back. Don't worry about it." At the time, I'm thinking he's trying to sabotage me getting signed professionally so that I can go to USC, in which I signed a letter of commitment to. So I talked to my mom, my brother, and everybody's kind of mediating, you know, me to how to talk to my father. So I, I built up enough courage to tell my father. So in other words, your father, not to go full circle here, and I hope you don't reach across here and strangle me, <laughs> but I see a part of your father and how you walked up to the mound to your son. Right. I see that thing where you're putting forth that your son is going to walk on eggshells around you and is not going to challenge you. Similarly to how you're, you were, I'm not going to say afraid, but you were concerned about speaking your dad because you didn't know what the consequences would be. That's fascinating. It was Hugh's, it was Hugh's respect. You know, I, I think that that word to this day, my dad's still alive and it's huge respect. I mean, to the point where, uh, I mean, even to today, whatever I approach my dad with and talk to my dad, I want to have, make sure that there's that respect there because as a man, that's, that's what you, you give and you work hard for, for anybody is that mutual respect. My place in respect to him is here and he's there. And when I approach my son, it's a little different. There's a mental aspect that I give. I tell people all the time, I'm not physically going to tell my kid mechanically how to play the game, but there's mental lessons I'm going to teach him. And what I told him that day, if he ever cried again on that field, he will never step on a field again. I said, it's enough with the crying, right? I've watched it for two years. And that's what I told him. Wow. It had nothing to do with throwing strikes. This I don't care about results because there's got to be some type of consequence, right? That's a huge consequence. <laughs> Christ, I saw Calvin Chiraldi crying into a towel in 1986, okay, when the Red Sox blew it. So I wonder if his dad didn't have that conversation with him. So, um, Okay, so your dad, you right. have the courage to talk to him. What do you say? I told him I wanted to play professionally. And there's a whole, you know, back to He's like, you know, you're giving up your education Things don't work out. What's going to happen? You know, I said, I don't know that, but I just know it's my time and this is my opportunity. So I, in a number of ways, asked him to when they did, if they did, and when he did have an opportunity to talk to the Giants to get something done. So did he call them or did he wait no, for them to call? No, they, they called him, which was going to happen. Uh, All right. So the power of no. Right. They call him back. What's their next offer? I want to say it was 150. And was your dad still like, get the fuck out of here? No, he was like, well, you know, we're getting closer. And I, I had, he had more of like a 200,000. Sounds like mine ago. When they got to 180, I couldn't take anymore. I said, dad, that's it. I said, let's, let's do it. So he said, this is your decision. 
And the thing is, he taught me at that point in time, son, you're going to be a man from here on out. This is your decision. You live with your decision. I'm not making that decision for you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. This is your decision. So as a man, you take responsibility for whatever happens. And from that day on, I took responsibility for whatever happened in my life as a man. There's no excuses. I think as a parent, a lot of times, or as a person, we try to place blame or an excuse on something that happened that caused this to not work out the way we want it to work out. If this wasn't going to work out, he made it very clear that it was going to be because of me. Well, that's, that's incredible advice because that's so true of everything. And, and I, I always say that that's, you have to take responsibility. You have to figure out what it is that's happening and why it's happening. And what, no matter what profession you're in, you have to figure out if you're not, if people are getting partnership at the law firm and you're not, and you can't understand why, then you got to look deeper and figure out why, because chances are it has something to do with the patterns that you're creating at that job. So, so you get drafted in 1988. When do you go to the minors in spring training of uh, 1989? No, no. As soon as I signed that contract, I went to Everett, Washington. I was sent to Everett, Washington to start my first pro season, which is what they call short season A ball. Got it. And you made it to the pros in 1991, which is about a, a little uh, under three years or around three years, around three years. And so you get to the major leagues. Um, you go to spring. Do you go to spring training each year or just uh, that that year? Uh, well, I got called up. So my goal oh, you got when I signed up. was to be in the big leagues by the time I was 21, which is was unheard of at that time, especially for a high school kid. And I was able to accomplish that goal. Amazing. So yeah. wait, so you get called up. You get called up in September when they call up the 40 players. They expand right. the roster to 40 players. Right. And take me through the first time you got the chance to play. The manager, was it? Was the manager Dusty Baker? Then Roger, or somebody? Roger Craig. Roger Craig, that's right. So tell, take me through the day when you, you know, you're, you're there, you don't know if you're going to play, and, and what happens with a major league player who, you know, you don't know when you're going to play. How do you find out you're going to play, and what happens, and and what happened that day? Take me through that day. Well, first, first off, when I was, I was, I was home because I had finished my Double A season. We won a championship, which was something I'll never forget. Which kind of taught me that whole thing. Because long story short, we had a terrible team that I first signed with, and at that time, you kind of played each progression, each league with those same players, and for us to win a Double A championship, some two or three years later of playing together it was huge for us. But I come home from that season. So I was at home at the house I grew up in Inglewood and I, the phone rings at that time, there was no cell phone. So the phone rings at the house and I pick it up and guy on the other side of the phone says, Hey Royce, this is Al Rosen. Congratulations. We're calling you up to the big leagues. Want you to meet us at Jack Murphy stadium in San Diego. Here's the details. And as he's, giving me the spill. I'll hang up the phone thing is when my buddy's giving me shit. <laughs> <laughs> so phone rings again and he goes, Royce, this is Al Rosen. If you hang up the phone again, I'm not calling you up. So I'm like, okay, it sounds like, oh, dude, this is, a, you know, this is not one of my buddies. I listen in closer and 
you know, he said, I'm going to have the traveling secretary call you. He's going to have all your information. Congratulations. Welcome to the big leagues. Hangs up. And there's nobody there but the dog. So I'm celebrating with the dog going crazy. <laughs> uh, call my mom and dad and tell them. And, you know, it's just becomes somewhat of a blur until I arrive at the ballpark. In 24 hours, there's got to be a uniform there with your name on it, probably. Yeah. How do they determine what number you're going to get and what's the story and what number what number were you, you know, in the minor leagues? And I wore 10 and 11. Well, I was with a one because Ozzy Smith was my favorite player, but I said one was kind of a tribute to him. I'm going to quit wearing one after high school. Okay. So I wore 10 or 11, which I was a one. And then when I got called up, you just come to the ballpark and the man, the clubhouse guy has a uniform for you. And I was number 21. So you like the number? I I I liked it looking back at it, the way it worked out, but I wanted to switch it as soon as possible. You're given a number at first, and then when you earn it, you you get a you get a you can request a number. So like in any profession where the new person comes to town or the new person comes into the firm or the new person comes into wherever it is you're working, you walk in and there's, you know, 39 other guys. I believe it's a 40-man roster in September. There's, you know, 25 guys there that chances are they played with the team on and off. There's at least 20 guys that feel secure, maybe. And then you have 20 guys that are not so secure. What's the reception when you come into the clubhouse? Tell me what you noticed, like how many players were warm and welcome and how many players you know, we're a little bit chilly. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll never forget the fact that, you know, I didn't have bats. I didn't have, you know, I just had a glove, you know, just a couple of things. And when I got to the, to the clubhouse, I'm walking in and Kevin Mitchell was, was walking in as well. And actually I was trying to get into the ballpark and these people weren't letting me in They It looked like I was probably a bat boy or something. They're like, you know, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, Kevin walks up, gets out of his car. He's from San Diego. I think he was driving his Porsche. And, hey, what's up, baby? Let's go. Let's go. Gives me, gives me a big bear hug and walks me through. So I walk in the clubhouse, see my jersey, see my locker, and I'm just sitting there in awe, just taking it all in next to Will Clark. I mean, actually, I was kind of adjacent to him. They just do a makeshift because when they expand the roster, they kind of just makeshift stuff to where they have enough lockers. And... uh Kevin's again take me under his under his wing and he goes, Man, you need some bats and he hands me a couple of his bats and these things are like logs. So I pick <laughs> one of them up and it's almost tipping me over. Because he weighs like about two hundred and fifty pounds. Oh man, he's swinging like thirty five ounce bats. And I'm just <laughs> like, man, he's like, Well, what do you swing? I was like, maybe like a 31, 32, 32 ounce, you know. <laughs> so this is a funny story. So he goes into Will's locker, Will Clark. And grabs like six backs and sticks them in my locker. <laughs> and if you know Will Clark, he's very, very sensitive about his bats. I mean, it's just like you don't touch his bats. That's something you don't do. And the look on his face was like, I'm not going to tell Kevin shit, but I'm going to give you shit for the rest of your life. And that's what happened. <laughs> so and my buddy's like, man, wh- whose bat did you guess? Like, man, I got Will Clark's bat. What are you talking about? Got my first major league hit with a Will Clark model. And uh, my buddy Bip Roberts was playing left. And, I, you know, he kind of, you know, I, he didn't, I wouldn't say he let it fall in, but, you know, it was one of those deals where he could have dove and he just short hopped it. And I got my first knock and, 
off of Jeremy Hernandez. Still have that ball? Still have it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So uh, a few things before we get into your other professions, um, which I think are important uh, because you talk about hard work and mental toughness and what it takes to get to certain places. And one of the things we talked about before the podcast here was I remember um, there was a uh, player for the Red Sox in 2007 that pinch hit in the fourth game and final game of the World Series in Colorado named Bobby Keltley. Um, never really heard of him. He hit like a three-run home run. And on the big stage, he did everything that a player is supposed to do to for a stock to rise, for everything to move in the right direction. And he may have been a guy that was a journeyman or an underdog his whole life, but he finally got to the big stage and made it happen. But after that, the team didn't pick him up the next year. He bounced around and he was out of baseball in a short period of time. And so it's fascinating to me that even though you can be great on the big stage, you still have to figure out ways to improve and be better and figure out a way to navigate to get yourself where you need to go. And on the other side of the coin, you were you um, played with a player who many consider to be the one of the greatest players in the history of baseball. Uh, probably 95% of the major leagues would probably say he was the greatest player that they ever played against or play, played with. And he was a guy who was a natural talent. He was gifted. And early on in his career, he was as good as anybody, if not better. But then things started happening where he started cheating. And that's Barry Bonds. And so here you have somebody who was the greatest player without performance-enhancing drugs. And then he became the greatest with the drugs. You're a guy who's killing yourself, who's taking those jogs, who's doing everything naturally. And you're in the locker room where you're not only seeing Barry Bonds do things that are detrimental to the game, but helping them have an unfair advantage over everybody. But you're probably seeing as many as 40% of the players on your team and in the league doing that. Yet it's like growing up in Inglewood, where if you see somebody do something and the police come around and they say, did you see who did that? You have to look straight in the eye of the police officer and say, no, I didn't see anything. How... Did you handle that, knowing the mental toughness and the work ethic you have, and you're trying to be the best, you're trying to be an all-star, you're trying to win a World Series, and then all these players are doing things that give them an unfair advantage over you. How do you handle that, and how did you persevere? Yeah, it's funny you, you, you bring this up. Interesting topic. Um, just to go to the end result, I was so adamant about the way I played the game is I started a foundation called Clean Play to help eradicate sports-enhancing drugs in sports. And I figured if you stop it at the high school levels, it won't work its way through the 
college and the pro ranks. And what we do is educate the high schoolers about the dangers of, of what these drugs can do because there's so much what they see on the upside. If I take the drugs, I'm going to get to the big leagues. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to have a, a great career. I'm going to have all this fame and fortune. But on the other side, the kids that don't make it, it's eating up their insides. They're on, you know, on, on all types of different drugs the rest of their life just to stay alive. And there's a lot of negativity behind it. Any drug, you know, that you submit your body to for an extended amount of time. So to, to, to kind of put that in perspective, when I played, I, I just, like you said, I want to get to the big leagues, right? So when I got there and all these things started to surface as far as you could do this to enhance your performance, you could do this. The only way I knew how to make myself better was through hard work. I didn't need to take a shortcut. I'm in the big leagues now. There's no league that's going to be better, <laughs> right? Uh, it wasn't about the money for me. It wasn't about the fame. This is what I set out to do. And I asked God to give me the ability to do, to do that. And that's what I was given. That's what I was blessed with. And I say this all the time for me to say, you know what, God, I've made it to the big leagues. I fulfilled my dream, but it's not enough. That's like, to me, a, the ultimate disrespect because you're put in a place that very few have the opportunity to, to, to experience and to achieve. You've achieved that. Now it's not enough. And that's what's happened is that this gluttonous appetite for more and more and more has caused people to not only sacrifice uh, their reputation, their legacy, sacrifice your body because God knows what that stuff's going to do to you in the long run. And I don't want to go off into too many different ways, but one of the things is that before I even had kids, I wanted to be able to sit my kid down, tell him what I did, be proud of that achievement, and pass that on to him to say, hey, this is how you can do it, through hard work and dedication. Now, how about those guys that have to sit down and tell their kids today that they cheated? To me, that's like, there's no money on this planet. There's nothing that you can give me to ever have to have that conversation with my kid. That's bigger. It's bigger than me. You know, his kid's going to have to carry that on for the rest of his life. It's not his fault, but guys I play with, those kids, their kids are going to have to carry on the things that they did. And that's part of their legacy is the fact that they did cheat. How are you going to tell your son not to cheat when you cheated? And everybody knows he cheated. That's the problem. And I know it's hard for a 22-year-old, 23-year-old kid to make those decisions, but for some reason I was just mature enough and grounded enough not to make that decision because it wasn't about me. You know, it wasn't about just Royce getting more and more. Royce is going to someday have kids in which I want to sit them down and tell them, hey, man, this is what I did and be proud of that. Wow, that's uh, very profound. And I think the problem with society is people get it all twisted. It's like I played a beautiful team sport, right, with some of the greatest players. And you can sit here and talk about all these great players and this, that, and other. But the greatest winners and true leaders and true champions are not the people that you read about in the paper. Those aren't the people that helped me get to the World Series and win a, win a ring. Now, David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez were big parts of it. But there's other people behind the scenes that don't get the credit that are the true champions and, and the true leaders of the clubhouse, true ch leaders of the organization. And unfortunately, people just look at, okay, this guy is who you see on ESPN. You know, it's Barry Bonds versus Mike Piazza. No, it's not. 
You know what I mean? Barry told, would tell you himself, it wasn't until later in his career that he could ever do a thing in any type of championship play. Right? And there's guys that have been great individual players but never true champions because they're individuals. And there's that's two entirely different things. And that's, to me, uh, the biggest thing that people have to understand. You can have all the accolades in, in the world that you want for yourself. But the biggest thing was me putting on that ring, and I didn't even play a game. I remember, you know, recently, uh, I think a couple of years ago, when Bobby Valentine was coaching the Red Sox, and it was a disaster, and they were losing. And I remember he called out Kevin Euclid, who was a hardworking player, always worked really hard to get where he was, and uh, questioned his work ethic when he was injured. And I remember something you just said about leadership in the clubhouse. I remember Dustin Pedroia saying in the press, I don't know where that guy's from, but we don't play that shit here. That's not how we play. That's not how we run this organization or this clubhouse. And to go up against your manager when... You know, normally the manager has the say over the players. Uh, that was an incredible show of leadership. And it uh, it made me think about something that I talked to you about before that you can hardly believe is when I met with Joe Torre. He was doing a, a guest shot on a sitcom and I asked him in his entire career who was the person that he would least like to face in the ninth inning with players on base. And he said, without hesitation, Dustin Pedroia. And I don't think of him in that way, but maybe Joe Torre, as a leader of men, saw that that little guy was a leader of men. And you are a leader of men. And uh, that's the moment I met you, the moment I, I saw you when I see you around your kids. You are that guy that you just talked about who might not be it's you know Barry Bonds versus Sammy Sosa no it's not it's Royce Clayton in the clubhouse he's an all-star he won a world series he's one of the most respected guys but he's a leader and I take I took pride into being that leader I learned it from what I feel some of the best in the game the Dusty Bakers, you know, Willie McGee's, Robbie Thompson. I take a piece from each one of these guys and try to say, okay, if I want to win a championship, it's going to require a lot. And a leader is somebody that's unselfish in every way. And that's the hard part for people to understand. It's like, okay, I can take the best person statistically, but is that person willing enough to go the extra mile and be unselfish and actually give a piece of himself for the betterment of the team. And there's very few people that are able to do that. <clears throat> and I said it's very hard because statistically there's a lot of things. And I've seen one player that has, look, achieved ultimate greatness. I, I was a good, I consider myself a very solid, good player. Uh, and it was able to leave once I understood what it was to be a leader. But <clears throat> I have to get my hat off. <clears throat> the biggest leader I've seen in today's game that truly is a super, super star is Derek Jeter. 
for some way, some somehow, he's able to go off and achieve the things he is individually, and not focus on himself individually. And obviously, with him winning what five world championships as the center of that team, the big stage, and, and he's unselfish. The dude is truly unselfish, and I would say that from knowing him personally and playing against him, he will lay down a bunt. He will give himself up in a big situation. He will do whatever it takes to win. And that's tremendously hard, especially when you're talking about going out there and, you know, achieving 3,000 hits. <clears throat> Even when he did that, he didn't care about it. It wasn't a big deal to him. And you that's know, truly true. You know what he has in common with you besides being a leader? He plays shortstop. <laughs> he plays no. shortstop. And he was thrust into a situation that was out of his control. He was on a team that took on Alex Rodriguez. He knew that he was playing with a guy who was cheating. You knew you were playing with a guy who was as big a star as Alex Rodriguez, Barry Bonds, who was cheating. How, I just want to ask you before we move on, like when you saw Barry Bonds, you know, self-destructing in the clubhouse or being disrespectful I use the word disrespectful because you're all about respect a guy who is the face of the franchise being disrespectful to players coaches fans and you were a leader as a leader even though you were a young player how did you handle that and how did you approach that situation and try to make it better not only for the players the coaches in a situation where that was almost beyond your control, similarly to how Derek Jeter, Jeter had to handle the press and do things when Alex Rodriguez was around. Well, th th there's two things that Barry's career, when I played with Barry, he just came up from Pittsburgh and by, by far the best player in the game, best I've ever seen. And it was before everything happened with the McGuire social run. I was with St. Louis, so I wasn't there for that part of his career. But I will tell you, I, I have a personal relationship with him because my brother went to ASU with Barry in college. So he would come to L.A. and I knew him, you know, I was in high school, but I knew Barry when he was at ASU. So when I played with Barry in a very different way, he motivated me and took me under his wing. Very different, you know, just he was he was somewhat that that dude that just hard love. It's the best way to describe Barry, very sensitive, but outwardly just didn't know how to, you know, show, hey, man, I care about you, respect, whatever. He just would say, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> Prove me wrong. You know what I mean? So I'll, it, this is a story behind that, that, that part of Barry that nobody saw. 1993, he bet me $1,000 I wouldn't hit 280, right? So I'm hitting 300 most of the year and just talking shit back and forth. And he's bantering, oh, you're going to choke it off. Don't worry about it. So we go into L.A. We won 102 games. The last day of the season, we have to beat the Dodgers in order to have a playoff game with the Braves, who just won their 104th game that afternoon. So long story short, we end up getting our asses kicked by the Dodgers and, you know, goes down in infamy as, you know, 103 wins without making the playoffs. So I'll never forget after that game, I'm dejected here in LA and was going to get my first play, taste of playoff baseball. We lost that game. 
I'm sitting in my locker, just couldn't think of anything besides how much I'm hurting and what a great season we have, but, you know, we came up short. And I get a tap on the shoulder, turn around, it's Barry, and hands me $1,000. And I had totally forgot about it. Totally. At that moment, last thing in my mind was the bet. He hands me $1,000. But just to say that people are different in how they go about it, I, w- I come from kind of like that tough love situation anyway, so somebody being hard-assed on me is not anything that I reject or turn away from or whatever. It's just who that person is. Um, was Barry a leader? Barry led just by going out on the field every day. That was his thing. And that's what he would tell me as a young player. He's like, dude, if I'm playing today, there's no way you're taking a day off. He's like, dude, don't ever come off that field. And that was something else I took in. As much as there's some negative things that people can say about Barry, I tend to take the positive from everybody. I played over 2,000 games and was on a DL once because of those types of lessons. Don't come off the field, suck it up, go out there and play for your team. Uh, now, as far as the decisions that he made to what people say, whatever he did uh, later in his career, I wasn't I wasn't there for that. But uh, to say I, w- I truly played with the best player uh, of that generation, of maybe any generation, is something I always tell my kids. So, like I said, I can we can all get into people's decisions and why they made those decisions and what they did or, or any of that. But at the end of the day, it's just like, what can we take positive from that person to make myself a better player, a better person? Well, speaking of playing with one of the greatest players ever, we come full circle here with my last series of baseball questions before we get into the other stuff. You get traded to St. Louis in the 90s, okay? And Ozzie Smith, your idol, your inspiration, the guy who, the reason why you want to play baseball and you took those jogs up those hills and hit those balls until you knocked a hole through the wall. You get traded to St. Louis because it's the end of his career and his career is winding down. And when you're traded, again, no control. You're not a 10-5 guy. You got to go. And you're going to St. Louis for one sole purpose. The guy who's the heir apparent to the position of shortstop to replace your idol, Ozzie Smith. Now, as the story goes, which I believe you're going to tell, unfortunately, no one told Ozzie Smith. <laughs> he lost. He didn't get the memo. <laughs> he didn't get the memo. So we tell what it's like to go into a situation now that we all talk about where you have to go in and there's people coming in who are there to succeed and take your job, even if you're a Hall of Famer. So talk about what happened and how you handled it and what went down. And because that to me had to be one of the most exciting yet traumatic times of your life. And you were dealing, I believe, with the coach at the time who's a guy who uh, has his own problems, Tony LaRusso. Hey, so I get a call from Walt Jockety, the GM for the for the uh, Cardinals. He goes, uh, congratulations, you've just been traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. And I'm like, what? 
I, I never in a thousand years did I think uh, I would ever lead the Giants organization for one, uh, for two, be traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. The first thing that popped up in my mind is like, well, where's Ozzy going? And uh, Tony wanted to meet with me. Tony LaRusso wanted to meet w- with me for lunch to, I think, in large part, discuss me coming over, how happy they were to have me as as a shortstop. And obviously, too, the Ozzie Smith situation. So I should have known something was going on because, you know, in the offseason, you kind of see there's shortstops out there in the market and they were kind of talking about, oh, well, you know, Walt Weiss is in the market. Maybe he goes to Tony La Russa and goes into St. Louis and, you know, everybody's just turning these, this job away. So I think part of that problem was guys knew that Ozzy wasn't going to walk away and just walk off into the sunset. So that lunch was about uh, Tony telling me that he'd handle the situation. Ozzy was going to stay, but they'd figure out how to make it as, as easy as possible, the transition. So in his mind, he's telling, he, he would think that, okay, well, we'll tell Ozzy that he's going to be replaced by me. Ozzy's going to have to deal with it. I'm Tony LaRusa, and that's just the way it is. That's not what happened. Ozzy stuck his chest out just to say, hey, I'm an icon in this city, and nobody's going to push me out. I'm going to go out the way I want to go out, okay? So how does it, you know, at that, in those <laughs> situations, like, because you were there, like, this is the same with Derek Jeter. Now, Derek Jeter's last year before he got injured had one of the greatest years of his life. It was almost like he wasn't, but it was almost like he was taking steroids because he, I mean, how many people have the best year of their life when they're 39 years old? I mean, it's amazing. Right. So right. Ozzy was, was winding down, but... I mean, was Ozzy the kind of guy who could go to management and say, look, uh, I don't care what's going on here. I'm playing and I don't care what's on that lineup card. I'm going in. Or does the coach still have control and the general manager and the owners or what? Well, well, Tony LaRusa had enough control and Walt Jockety, they came over and this is just the way it was going to be. You know, it was going to be Ozzy, you have to deal with this or Ozzy, just retire. And it became a conflict. It was like a, a, a battle between Tony LaRusso and Ozzy. Myself, I just happened to be in the middle of it. Did he take it out on you? Uh, and how did you approach him that first time you got there? Like, did you say, look... Uh, look, look, when Ozzy, when I was with uh, San Francisco, Ozzy would welcome me, take me to his restaurants, the whole deal, because he knew I was a huge fan. And Willie McGee would tell him stories about, I'm tired of this kid talking about you. You know, here's Royce, you know, Royce, have at it with Ozzy. So there was already that relationship. And Willie was now with me in St. Louis. So he came from with me from uh, uh, San Francisco and came over and signed with St. Louis. So he was a big help into me dealing with that situation because he knew Ozzy, played with Ozzy for years, knew me as a kid, and was trying to make this as easy as possible because Willie had a true, um, I guess, if you will, understanding of how big a problem this could be, and he was trying to make the best of it. The unspoken leader. The unspoken leader, obviously. So uh, when I came in, you know, 
I met with Ozzy. We sat down and talked. He said, this will never affect our friendship. It won't affect anything. We'll just go out and play it out as, as, it, as it plays itself out and don't worry about it. It's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't always happen <laughs> that way, does it? So it didn't pan out that way. Uh, funny story. Uh, we opened up in New York. And there was this, this battle in spring training, which means absolutely nothing, but they try to make it out like, okay, whoever has the best average or plays the best in spring training is going to be a starting shortstop. So... Tony calls me in before the series in New York, says, you're my open today. You're my starting shortstop. Ozzy doesn't like it. So be it. So I go, we go to New York, call my dad as I do every night before opening day. Say, man, I'm looking forward to it. Starting off new, you know, I'm excited about my situation here in St. Louis, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm glad I, that all that stuff in spring training is over. I'm starting. He Nothing. Goes, he goes, what? what he goes, it? no, you're not. I go, what are you talking about? He said, well, there was watching TV. He watched everything. And they said that Ozzie Smith had been named the starting shortstop for opening day as a tribute. You know, Ozzie Smith is going, you know, Tony decides, oh, well, I can't disrespect the guy. He's going to be the starting shortstop for what he says is his last year. So I go to sleep unbeknownst, you know, to me, just not knowing this stuff and kind of trying to take it in. So you don't make a call to Tony LaRusso? No, 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 no. You don't talk to anybody? No, no, no. I go to the ballpark the next day, and sure enough, Ozzie Smith is starting leading off. So I didn't say anything, just go through batting practice halfway through. You didn't say anything? Nothing. It's it's not for me. I don't write the lineup out. I can't do anything about it. But the guy lied to you your manager who you have to play for (laughs) and you're starting your first your your first professional game with the manager that you have to have a relationship with just lied to you and hasn't explained why he lied to you that's i I didn't have anything that my focus was to prepare myself the best i could to play every single day that's the way i went about it so Funny thing happens, I guess, unbeknownst to me, he had a hamstring, was irritated, whatever. He's a scratch. He's a scratch, right? So halfway through batting practice, hey, kid, you're going to start. Ozzy's hamstring's not feeling well, whatever. So whatever. Go get prepared. Go out. Opening day. Jets flying over, whole thing. (laughs) They introduce St. Louis Cardinals. 1997 starting, you know, shortstop leading off number one, Ozzie Smith. And I go running out. The PA people didn't even know it. I go running out. I'm he's scratched. I'm playing. They still announce him, me as Ozzie Smith. I go running out. And it's just like, if you could write a book about this, this whole, you know, synopsis of how this pans out, it's crazy. Now, are when they I couldn't even script it. When crazier. they announce Ozzy Smith, are you like sort of like start the run? You're like, wait, do I? I just go running out there. I know I'm leading off and in, in, in playing shortstop, uh-huh. and my number is eleven. I'm one better. In <laughs> <laughs> my heart of hearts, here's the deal. Go back to spring training, right? This is, I never told anybody this. This is what you have to understand. The greatness. You study greatness, imitate greatness, you become great. And I had an opportunity to measure myself to that greatness, which I set my standard to. 
And what I saw is I was better than that greatness. I wasn't intimidated, not from day one, because I got a chance to see him uh, prepare, uh, ask little questions mentally to, to help me get better. And I took it. Everything I took, I just took a piece of it. Now my physical ability, I'm 26 years old. I'm faster, stronger. Now I just don't have the intellect, but I will get that. But everything that you do, everything that you've done, I could do better and imitate it and actually become, make it better. Right? So when I would go out there every single day and do my prep and watch him, I'd watch him out of respect, take your ground balls. I didn't go take ground balls with him. I just watched him because I was soaking up more, more education, more knowledge. So when my time came and you wanted to measure me to Ozzy Smith, I'll tell anybody to this day until the day I die, I, I was better than him. You can't be better than me at 40-something years old and I'm 26 and I know everything that you do and I've mastered your craft. I wore your same glove. I knew how you would take a backhand. I knew your preparation and I took it a, a step above that. Wow, that's <laughs> that's incredible. All right, so let's talk about this thing that you started called Music Locker, which fascinates me. If you're out there and you're anything or you're trying to be anything or trying to get anywhere, the best chance of you getting anywhere is to create a situation for yourself that's original and that's never been done before. Because if you do that, then you got your best shot of getting to where you want to go. I'm not saying you can't get to where you want to go by doing something that might be something that somebody else has done. But to take the concept of seeing all these players who are playing themselves onto this music and they're giving the music rights, the publishing rights and the royalties to the artists that they're doing it, God knows how much money for Enter Sandman or any of these musical artists that, that people play that they make off these players. But you thought to yourself, hey, I'll start this company where I can help players create and write and conceive and publish as a joint venture with you and an entity, a musical entity, DJ Ski, their own music that they get played on. And if they have a long career, they're going to feel the royalties. They're going to get all those royalties, not the musical artists that they're borrowing the song from. And I thought that was an amazing original thing that you're doing. And I thought I'd love you to talk about how the concept came to you. Well, it started, obviously, we're like the generation that started it. Like in the mid, I said early 90s, guys started come up to bat for some reason with their own thing. I think what was your song? Tupac, Me Against the World, California Love. I was a big Tupac fan. So these songs were something that wanted to give me guys that did it, that were, you know, believed in it. It's just, it's just like anything that motivates you. It's like motivational music. So at that time in St. Louis, going back to the Ozzy situation, the Ozzy Smith situation, I felt like I was, it was me against the world. So that, that song by Tupac was very uh, uh, tied with what I was going through, what I felt. So it was a big thing with, with I felt it, it was a big thing that was synonymous with the brand, with who I was and what I was going through. And I said, imagine if somebody could sit down with a writer, a great artist 
and produce a song that can truly inspire them with their likeness, their name in it, you know, where would that go? It would create a relationship with the artist. Every artist wants to be a professional athlete. Every professional athlete wants to be an artist. Let's just make it easy, bring the two together to truly monetize each other's brands. So that was my goal uh, uh, in starting, you know, the music company with the walk-up songs. And not only that, like you said, with the publishing and the mechanics of that song, because we're marketing that song to 3 million plus people a year, why not create some type of residual income? Whereas if that song goes off and becomes a whoop, there it is, or, you know, some big song in the sports industry, the player and the artist can truly monetize that song together. So that was really the inspiration behind the walk-up song uh, company that created Music Locker and creating residual income for the player, uh, their IP rights, and just their following after they're done playing. I think music was, was that component. So I started the company. Tell me a moment in your life, your career professionally, that's like literally the holy shit moment. Something that happened that no one would ever believe could possibly happen. Any crazy story that no one would ever believe in your career that happened or behind the scenes that would be a, a highlight chapter of your book. Well, I, I think a lot of the, the, the things we talked about is around Ozzy Smith, uh, how he was such a big influence in my life. And I take that as, you know, the good, the bad, and indifferent. Because that year was, to me, one of the biggest growth periods of my life as, a, as an individual, challenging as a player. Um, after that season, we, we won the, the championship, by, by the way. We were one game away from the World Series. We're up three games to one against the Braves, end up losing. But uh, my dad had uh, left, I think he traveled from St. Louis to see my grandmother in Texas. And I think because of all the things I went through that year and just the sheer pressure, he was living every bat, every moment, seeing me be, get booed in front of 30,000 people at my home stadium in St. Louis. He ended up having a stroke. Changed, changed my life, changed his life, changed my family's life. I wouldn't blame that, but I'm just saying it, it, this part of this whole uh, stress as a parent, stress as a player, what you go through in life, uh, some things happen. There's some good things and, again, some bad things. So to paint the picture of how influential Ozzy Smith was, was on my life, from one story is – I never, I never understood why I said this, but my mom cut out a, an article that I did when I signed in 1988 with the Giants, and it just, I was just talking, and I said, uh, you know, I love shortstop position. Isaac Smith is uh, my favorite player, and one day I'd like to replace him in St. Louis. I was drafted by the Giants, and my mom told me this when this was all going down. I said, No, I didn't, I didn't say that. She said, Royce, you said that. And she showed me the article and the quote. And I don't know for what reason or what, why it happened or whatever, but I self, I said it and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I never talked 
about the experience I had with Ozzy, with Ozzy personally. But uh, two years ago, we were doing an event together. My wife didn't know Ozzy because I was engaged previously and I was with somebody else, never got married to her. Your wife, Samantha. My wife, Samantha, who I'm now very happily married to. She's an amazing woman. She can, uh, this woman they is they get the athletic talent from my wife. She's an Olympic sprinter. She's Incredible woman. <laughs> Literally, you could circumcise a small Jewish boy off of this woman's <laughs> stomach. She is just as hard as a rock. But uh, She makes you look like Louis Anderson. Exactly. Just phenomenal shape keeps me in shape just to keep up with her. But uh, she had a conversation with Ozzy, unbeknownst to me, just you know, telling Ozzy that she knew about the situation. Obviously, she wasn't there to experience it. But she said, Ozzy, I just want to tell you one thing, regardless of what that situation, whatever happened, is that Royce has been very proud to tell his sons that you were his inspiration behind playing shortstop. And she's, she said it just brought tears to his eyes and said, hey, I understand that I didn't handle this situation the best way I could have, but it's just the way I handle it, and I'm glad that, you know, Royce has a great family and it's been successful. Wow. And, it, you know, it truly, that situation was so difficult on you because here you have a guy who handled business perfectly, handled the media perfectly. His whole career was like the pillar, almost like how... I, I, it's a bad example, but Joe Paterno was like a pillar of the community. And then, you know, something happens. I'm not saying Ozzy Smith is something like Joe Paterno, but the fact is, is that he, he helped, he assisted in turning the city against you and how he handled things and made your life so hard. And like you said, put a lot of pressure on your family and your dad. And, but in the end, it was nice to know that he admitted that he might have done done the wrong thing. But, you know, in the, the, the leadership that we talked about and the things that we talked talked about sacrificing to become a leader, uh, what I took from that, <clears throat> what I went through as, a, a you know, a kid pretty, you know, early in my career, is that I, I vowed to myself that I would never put a player through the same thing I went through. If put in that situation, I would try to help the heir apparent to anything that I was involved with because it's not about me. And to me, the biggest blessing is to be able to pass that on, you know, because it's not mine. If I can have knowledge, if I have anything that can help propel the next player to become a championship caliber player, make his experience uh, the right experience and teach him to become a leader, that's a blessing. So I think that's why I played to be to be honest with you, as as your skills start start to you know dwindle a little bit, and you're not as good as you used to be, you're not as quick. I was the first to to really step aside and say, "Hey, organizations like Milwaukee, I kind of helped Bill Hall, Ricky Weeks. These guys experienced championship from nothing, but I think I want to offer some type of leadership into how to win." Colorado with, with uh, Clint Barmas and Tula Whiskey and these guys, every Arizona, everywhere I went, I just tried to help these guys, especially in the middle of the infield, understand the importance of what they can bring to a team and truly become, you know, championship caliber players. Nice. Your proudest moment professionally. <sighs> My proudest moment professionally was 
having Big Poppy dedicate the World Series trophy to me in 2007. That was it. I, I could just walk off into the sunset. <laughs> and, you know, because not being there and going through the struggle with the guys is different. But to to come there and have some type of impact by not even – and that's another thing I want to speak on is, like, I didn't play – a lot and didn't play. I barely played at all. But when I came to Boston, I had a chance to sit back and just kind of take it all in. When you're playing, it's kind of hard to do it at the same time as be a leader and be able to contribute something because you're caught up in I got to do this, I got to do that. And then, but to be able to sit back and see what's going on and but take, not just sit back. You came in in the middle of the season. You were with Toronto. You asked Toronto to release you because they were going with the young players because their team wasn't doing that well. And uh, um, Theo Epstein called you and said, come over. So you're coming over halfway through the season yeah. where already people have chemistry. Already there's a dynamic going on. You come in and you're, how do you lead or lead by example when there's already an established hierarchy of players that are there and you're not really playing that often. I think it's from your body of work and just competing against you. And these guys knew what I was about, and especially David was was the first one to come over and, and, and hug me. But the funniest thing is, is Josh Beckett came over and said, hey, you ever win a world championship? I said, no. He goes, well, you're going to win one this year. And I was like, whoa, you know what I mean? I was like, this self-fulfilling is, prophecy. This dude was, I mean, to this day, ultimate competitor, competitor. And we go back and forth and bantering about how I, how I bought, battled against him. And we had these things, mano y mano. But when we came together, it was that respect. And that respect of David and, you know, I, Kurt Schilling in his own little stupid egotistical way. Uh, <laughs> first thing he tells me is like, man, you hit the furthest home run off me ever in my career. You remember that? I'm like, I played it off like, nah, I don't care about that, dude. You ain't shit. <laughs> now, if it was somebody important, I'll remember it. You ain't shit, Kurt. Nah, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah just just to know that you've been through those battles with these guys and now you're playing on the same team and there's that respect and the true word respect which we get around to you know for my father and with Elijah is that respect and to me that was the ultimate compliment and the, the thing that uh was the biggest moment in my career wow i'm saying wow a lot because it's really really incredible uh, your biggest disappointment professionally? My biggest disappointment was in 1997, we lost game seven. It was truly disappointing. I mean, I was crushed. After you were ahead three to one. We're up three games to one. And, you know, the one of the beautiful things about going through the playoff experience is, yeah, there was a lot of stress. But for me, it was like the easiest thing, the easiest part of the season because there was no longer about me and Ozzy. It was about the St. Louis Cardinals. And so it made it very easy for me to go off and perform. I had a great series because, to me, the pressure was off because it wasn't about, well, who's this? What's going to happen with this? What Ozzy is about, the Cardinals winning. But uh, the the disappointing fact is I never understood it, and I don't know if it was just taken wrong or he said it wrong, is after game seven, I get called in. To me, you know, Tony LaRusse is – He's a, one of the greatest managers of all time. We'll always be great respect for him. Ultimate competitor. He taught me how to compete a lot. You know, just 
besides all the stuff that happened in St. Louis, he ultimately taught me how to compete at a championship level every single day. But for some reason, we lost that game, and uh, he just said, I don't know if it was our time. I don't think it was our year. And I, I never quite understood that. Maybe he was trying to motivate me for the next year, and I never asked him. But to me, it was just like one of those disappointing moments, like we should have won it today. I don't know if I ever get back at this point. All right. So rewind. He takes you into his office. Tell me what you would have wanted to hear. Well, I think there was an experience there. He won a World Series and with 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 the A's and all the great teams he's been around. Uh the you know, before that going in spring training, he had everybody that had had that experienced World Series championship to talk about their experience. And I wanted him to tell me that I was now ready to take it to the next level and I'd be a cornerstone with that organization to do that. And I I just don't ever feel like obviously that was the way it was uh, supposed to be or he felt that way because as a free agent, the next I had my free agency was two years after that. And it was just so much hard feelings and the things I experienced there in St. Louis uh, I knew in my heart I wasn't going to sign back and I was traded as a free agent. Final question. What advice do you have for the young kid growing up in a random city across the world who has a dream of doing something special like professional baseball or music or being a lawyer or a or a doctor or uh, owning their own chain of clothing stores or anything, but just somebody who just wants to set their sight on something and wants to be and have the kind of career and life that you've had in your profession. What advice do you have for them? Well, imitate greatness. I mean, that was a big, I guess, uh, more I talk about the big, moral of the stories that we talked about today was about me imitating everything Ozzy did on and off the field professionally. I became that player, replaced that player to me went on. And in the business world, I tried to imitate greatness. Uh, Magic Johnson has been a great role model for me off, off the field, off the court to see how you can build business and create opportunity in the community. Uh, and, Ken Lombard, who was instrumental in, in doing a lot of these things, has taken me under his wing. I've you know been persistent in following up with those types of people because I want to be successful and want to imitate the true recipe for that success. I mean, people like yourself, I'm sure there's a number of people that you can point to that were pioneers in your in your field and you imitated that and you're where you're at today because of that. Uh, and I take my tip my hat to you for what you've been able to do in your particular field of, uh, you know, in comedy world and representing great comics around the world, having this show, all the great things you've done. So I just try to surround myself with positive people, imitate greatness, and just want a little bit of that to rub off on me. Well, <laughs> Royce Clayton, if I could pretend I'm a mirror... 
It's all rubbed <laughs> off on you. All right. I Every can't single wait. thing you've mentioned is rubbed off on you, and it's rubbed off on the people here sitting in the room, our producers, and it's rubbed off on me. And I'm going to leave you and the audience with something you said that you said you never really got a chance to say before. And it's part of what you just said, but I'm going to say the whole thing you said because it really stuck with me and resonated with me. Study greatness. Imitate greatness. Become great. What a motto. You are a reflection of all of those words, and I'm so grateful you came here. This has been unbelievable, really inspirational. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, you're the man. And this has been another episode of uh, Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.